Well, welcome everybody. We are glad that you are here with us this morning. We are at that point in our service where we are looking at a portion of the scriptures. We have been going through the book of Ephesians uh, this past few months, and we are now in the fourth chapter, starting in verse 7. Uh, normally, Shen would be reading scripture, but she's taking care of a young child for us right now, and she's serving us in that way. And so I will read it for us on her behalf. The words are in your bulletin, and they should be behind me. <laughs> Ephesians 4, 7 through 13. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why he, it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I'll say it, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We are presently in a month and on a day when diversity, equity, and inclusion are being celebrated here and across the world. And I know that this present movement and its various expressions causes much ambivalence in the minds and the hearts of Christians, and I know why. We'll consider some of that a little bit later. But wherever you are in your journey of faith, we're glad you're here because let us set aside our differences about some of its present applications and ask this question. Do you not long and hunger for a world of justice and equity where people are being treated as they deserve to be treated? Do we not long for and hunger for a world where diversity is welcomed, celebrated, and advocated, but diversity contributes to unity and not division? And do we not long for and hunger for a world where inclusion, motivated by love, is a dominant pattern of thinking, desiring, and acting? And I say, wherever we are in our journey of faith, we do. We do want those things. And if I read these verses correctly, we should. Because what we see here, literally 2,000 years before the first HR policy included DEI, is a call from the Apostle Paul for the church that Jesus founded to follow him by incarnating an equity so gracious, a diversity so unifying, and an inclusion so eternal and infinite that it blows our categories away and is profoundly beautiful. I submit to you, far more beautiful than our present reality of experiencing just these things is. 
These verses challenge all of us, both inside the church and out. Here, the apostle calls for unity, diversity, inclusion, and equity. He calls us to be a new kind of people. He calls us to be a new kind of community. He calls us to be a new kind of city. In the heart of the city we live in. This new city, this new community is called to show the world the full maturity of the love and sweetness that Jesus has for it. This community, as Tarek taught us last week, needs to understand that we are one people. It needs to know how to think of God, think of ourselves, think of each other. We're one spiritual body. We're one family. We're united by God's one spirit. There is a mystical spiritual unity in the church that's almost indescribable, but it's meant not to be invisible. We are meant to live it out. And Paul says here, live it out. He says three things. He says, in your gospel community, build a community of equity based on grace. Build a community of diversity leading to unity. And build a community of inclusion aimed at glory. Equity founded on grace. Diversity leading to unity. Inclusion aimed at glory. These are the three points I think are in here. Firstly, equity founded on grace. Look at, look at verse 7. In verse 7, it starts, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What's that mean? Good question. Scholars have wondered for a while, but they've sort of centered themselves and figured out what this part means. It means that this community is founded on the grace of Jesus Christ, full stop. Now, in our present culture, we are aiming for equity in a restless cauldron of society that is trying to find equity where there's rampant socioeconomic disparity, where there's rampant disparities in power and influence, popularity, and voice. And we have tried in our present culture, in our aspirations toward equity, we've tried to change who has cultural power. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It was primarily white males for generations, and we were trying to switch who's at the table. We're trying to be more inclusive of, of other genders, of other races, of other cultures, other sexual orientations. But what we haven't changed yet is the need for a resume. If you want a place at the table, back then or even now, at the table of cultural power, you need to show a resume that says, I deserve to be there. The resume used to be, these are the powerful people I know. This is the landed uh, family money, the ancient family money I have. The different data points are being used now because we are trying to upend that. But we just have new data points. Your resume needs to say, how much oppression have you endured and fought? How much social justice have you advocated for or been an ally of? It's still, ladies and gentlemen, at the heart of it, a resume 
based place at the table for everything. It's not, it's not just in the world of social justice, it's the world of banking. When, when, when I was talking to someone who was trying to get into an arts program, they needed to show her portfolio. When I was trying to get into law, I needed to show my LSATs and my GPA. It's always a resume. In other words, you are accepted based on your work. That is the fundamental paradigm that has not changed. And what I want to say is when your acceptance is based on your resume or your work, these things happen. Firstly, you get judged. A system of judgment and evaluation and condemnation is allowed to arise by those who hold power. Pharisaism is allowed to enter, be it traditional religious Pharisaism, traditional secular white male kind of Pharisaism that only allowed themselves in, modern, redescribed, more inclusive, justice-oriented places at the table, it's still your resume. And when it's based on your work, there's still that anxiety to fit in. There's still that need to prove yourself. There's that need to stick your elbows out and push others away in competition. You see, whenever something is based on a resume, it's based on works. And works righteousness, whether that righteousness is, is in front of the board that's supposed to hire you or the God who's supposed to accept you, that should create in you anxiety. That is indeed what happens. I remember I, um, I left the jock high school. Uh, if you look at my body carefully, you'll realize I was never a jock. If you look at how thick my glasses are, you realize what kind of a not jock I was. I was a nerd. And I left the jock high school and I went to, in Montreal, a very academic CGEP or college. And I thought, I'll finally be free to be myself because I'm more academic. Oh no, the resume just changed. I went from outsider because I wasn't athletic enough to outsider because I didn't go to the right private schools. It's still resume-based. These are the two things that start to grow and bubble when you base anything on meritocracy, resume-based. Pride, if you're on the right side of it and succeeding, or envy, if you're on the wrong side. And so I want to ask you, in our society right now, do we have issues with pride and do we have issues with envy? And I submit to you, read the news, and you will know we are filled as a culture with pride and envy. Because in a resume society, when people are used to earning their place at the table, once they're at the table, they think they're better. And if you're not at the table, you envy them because you don't think they're better. And we have a problem. Here then is the root of what the gospel identifies as the issue with humanity. Pride. The inclination we have to be competitive with others, to rise ourselves above others, to say, I know better, I am better, I should keep this advancement, and I will bar the door to others trying to rise with me or above me. 
And on the other side, the human inclination to envy. If you've ever looked at the Ten Commandments, there's something very interesting about the Ten Commandments that you should explore. The Ten Commandments has two bookend commandments. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, i.e. yourself. You should not put yourself before me. Pride. What's the last commandment? Coveting. Envy. These two are symptomatic of what happens when humans decide that they are going to self-generate self-worth. My worth is generated by me. I am the one. That always generates pride or envy. When equity is based on works, that is the result. And I submit to you, that is what's happening now. We're alienating ourselves from each other because pride and envy are embedded within the architecture of our attempts of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it's not just alienating us from each other. Pride is the essence of what alienates us from God. The Lord detests all those who are proud of heart, says Proverbs 16.5. And if I can find it quickly, Proverbs 18.16 says this, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, look, look at how the gospel founds these ideas of justice and equity. It founds our worth not on a resume, but on his resume, Jesus's. Look, look at the verses here. It says that Jesus ascended and gave gifts. He, the word but is embedded here. It's near the beginning of the sentence in the Greek, meant to be the beginning of the English sentence. And it says, remember, this unity is not uniformity, and this unity is a, um, this diversity is made by God. Grace has been given, it says, as gifts, as Christ has apportioned it. That word for apportion, the Greek word is metron, it's where we get metrics or measurements. It means you've been given a portion of gifts by God. Maybe you've been given the gift of helps. Maybe I've been given the gift of stumbling over carpets. Maybe I've been given the gift of, of preaching and teaching. I hope I have. I've been trying at it long enough. Should have figured it out. We have different gifts, but Christ has apportioned them. And he's apportioned the depth, intensity, and capacity of them. So some of you may have a, a gift of leadership but you have it at X plus two level and someone else has it at X level. But those are just gifts of God. People have different gifts, talents, temperaments, personalities. These are apportioned by God. God is the giver and the founder. He gives it by grace. When you get a gift at Christmas and it's different from the gift that your sibling gets, it's okay because they're both gifts. But if you get a different promotion than your colleague gets and you thought you deserved that promotion, you have a very different reaction. Because in that situation, it's works, it's resume, it's what you think you deserve. Over here, it's grace, it's a gift, it's what you don't deserve. You see gratitude instead of envy, humility instead of pride should dominate a culture and a community who believes this truth. But it goes deeper. It's not just God giving you gifts as a gracious thing. It's the God who ascended and then descended, or actually in 
chronological terms, descended and ascended. It says, we've been given gifts as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and then he quotes Psalm 68, one of the more obscure Psalms. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. He gave gifts to men. Now, this is a scholarly mess, and I, I, I will take very little time to untie the knot because, first of all, this is an obscure psalm where the psalmist is asking God to intervene in Israel's life like he did back in the days of the Exodus when he went before them, and he conquered enemies before them as a gift of grace. He led them out of slavery. It says, do that again, and Paul takes that, and he says it refers to Christ, and he changes the language from God receiving gifts in the original psalm to giving gifts. What's going on? I think Paul's capturing the essence of the psalm, which is this victory celebration of a conquering king. That's God, who's conquered his enemies. And here he finds Christ, who is ascending into heaven. This is his victory parade over his enemies. And he's got his captives with him, which captives are in context, sin, death, the devil, and the world. Those are his enemies. They're not human enemies. Ephesians 2 tells us that the things that capture our hearts is we follow the course of the world. We follow the dictates of the evil one, the prince of the power of the air. We follow the desires of our human selfish nature. These are the enemies of our hearts and flourishing. These are what Christ has, is bringing with Him in His ascension. It's this beautiful picture of the glorious rising of Christ. But how did He do that? It says, it keeps going, what does He ascended mean except that He also descended to the lowest earthly regions? Okay, the scholars are going nuts about what that means. We think it means becoming human and then dying on a cross for you and me. You see, God made us in His divinely beautiful image, but He made us to trust Him. And when we in our pride and envy went our own independent way and began to struggle with envy and pride for each other, God came to us and He said, the things you're doing are deeply grieving to me. You've walked away from me, and now you're walking away from each other. I will enter into your world and come to you in my son. He's going to live the life you should have lived, and then he's going to take the guilt of all your sin, all your pride, all of your envy, and he will pay its guilt by dying for you on the cross to forgive your sins. What a picture. What a picture of grace. You see, Jesus did not give in to pride. He had no envy, no striving, no pride. Instead, it says he humbled himself, Philippians 2. Did not consider equality with God to be grasped, no envy. He humbled himself. He emptied himself and became one of us. Then becoming one of us, human flesh, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus. He died for you in humility. There's no greater grace, men and women, than the grace offered in the gospel to found all discussions of justice and equity because he's saying, I am going to base your place not on what you deserve, but on what you don't deserve. You've got to come to me, and you've got to give me your junk, 
your guilt, the things you've done wrong, and I will pay for it. And I will give you my good, my holiness, my righteousness. I will exchange them for you. You get what you do not deserve because Christ took what he did not deserve. Do you see the beauty in this? Here in the gospel, we're all considered equally guilty before God, equally undeserving of his grace. We have no resume to give him, but we're equally forgiven, equally beloved, equally inheriting the riches of eternal life. Our fundamental identity is so solid that if we get different gifts and different measures of gifts, eh, it just shouldn't matter. We should celebrate that we get any gifts at all on top of eternal life to help the church grow and see the sweetness of Jesus and give it away. How freeing is that? You can be you and not have to worry about you not being the best carpenter, mechanic, artist, data analyst, nurse, doctor, whatever. You don't have to be the best You just have to be the you God has made you. No envy. No pride. And then in the church, you come and you have your gifts. And you don't envy someone who has the same gift you have but more. I used used to do that. When I first started preaching, I had serious envy of old preachers who were dead, like Charles Spurgeon. Old preachers who were retiring, like John Piper. And preachers who were training me like Tim Keller. I just had preacher envy. It was wrong. I'm just me. I ain't no Tim Keller. But I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to share the sweetness of Jesus like Tim did. And so does each and every person who's a Christian. You have the opportunity to share the sweetness of Jesus and make this church smell that sweetness and taste that sweetness and enjoy that sweetness and become sweeter thereby. It's an equity. We're all equal based on grace. We're all equally sinful. We're all equally forgiven. But there's a diversity, and we're going to look at that second one. There's a diversity meant to fuel unity. That's the diversity of gifts that he's given. And so he says that he's given us different gifts, and he names some in verse 11. He says, so Christ gave himself the apostles, himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the prophets, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service, so the body of Christ may be built up. So here is the diversity of gifts. There are here some gifts that were offices in the early church. Um, And so some scholars have wondered, is is this meant to be a heavy clergy-dominated view? No, it's the opposite. This is the unleashing of the church where every member is meant to be a minister. However, There are some gifts which are more equipping of others in their nature. And these gifts seem to be the ones that are named here. Some people think it's offices, but he has said just earlier that these are gifts. And so I take these, as I think most scholars do, as gifts. And so we have 
apostles, prophets, evangelists. Those three may be a little more itinerant in nature where you go from place to place. And then some do be pastors and teachers. That, that, that feels like it's one role, actually. A teaching pastor might be one way to put it, someone who preaches and teaches people but also shepherds them. But these are the, these are the equipping gifts that are meant to equip people to serve each other. In other parts of the Bible where these are listed, it's usually a mixture of offices and gifts. The gifts of administration and helps and healing are, are, are threaded into other descriptions which have these as well. And so what it's saying, men and women, is this. You have gifts. And the role of the people who have the public gift, the preachers and the teachers and the evangelists and the, the apostles, is to equip you and encourage you and motivate you to use your gifts to beautify this community. All of you are called to unleash the gifts that you have. None of us are called to sit on the gifts. Can you imagine being at a Christmas party and you're sitting on three or four gifts? I mean, just think about that. Just been sitting there and you've been sitting there and Christmas comes and you haven't left your seat. Like, it's time to clean up. We're going to Christmas dinner. No, I just got to sit on some things for a while. It doesn't make any sense. And you, you get up and there's these squished gifts that you were meant to give away. And now they've got to be unsquished and kind of re-put back to normal. Don't do that. Take your gifts. Some have the gift of apostleship. It's the ability to go into places that are hard places, that the gospel is not well-known or well-liked, like what Lester's doing and Caitlin's doing and the kids are doing. And you go there and you express the love of Jesus to people who perhaps have never heard. The gift of prophecy is, the, is hearing from God and speaking God's words to the church as to what God wants the church specifically to do. Evangelists, it's those who have a specific gift in sharing Jesus and seeing people come to faith. I remember talking to um, a very renowned speaker in the African-American community, and we had brought him up for a conference, and, and Sue and I got to have lunch with him. And uh, we were talking about someone we both knew who did seem to have the gift of evangelism, and he said, man, I preached for 40 minutes, and I give it my best, and like a few people respond to the love of Jesus. This guy could get up and go, Mary had a little lamb, and he died on the cross. Who wants to come? And like 50 people would come. He just had the gift. And some people do. God just gives different gifts to different people. But the point here is the purpose of these gifts. It's to build the body of Christ. So, implication. One, if you're envying people who have different gifts than you, you're fighting against the God of grace who saved you by grace and gave you your gifts by grace, that you may sweeten the church of Christ by the use of those gifts. Put that envy aside. If you have one of these gifts, these preaching or teaching or evangelism or apostolic type gifts, you have a substantial stewardship to give those gifts away to raise other people up and unleash other people. This church is called to grow in unity and maturity and beauty by people being equipped by people from up front. 
It's a kind of individual power sharing and power giving and people raising gift that we're supposed to see for the purpose of unity and the overall flourishing of the group. I am not called men and women, even though I have a gift, I think, of preaching and teaching at some level. I'm not called to keep it to myself. I'm called to raise up other preachers and teachers that they may surpass me, like this young man over here is already surpassing me. Don't smile, it's true. Suck it up, Tark. <laughs> is that how leadership is used at your place of work? Are your leaders grooming you and equipping you to be the best leader you can be, to use your gifts to their fullest for the overall flourishing of the, of the organization? Or are they hoarding information and expertise so that they continue to keep their place? I was talking to uh, a number of people in a number of industries, and the hoarding happens pretty ubiquitously. It's in the consulting industry, it's in the legal industry, it's in the banking industry, it's in the medical professions. It just is. Use your gifts and enjoy them. Don't envy the other gifts. Celebrate that diversity. I remember I was, um, I was at a retreat. I was uh, still practicing law, but um, the uh, young adults pastor had asked me to lead the retreat. He wanted to see if I had any gift of leadership or not. Uh, he thought because I was a litigation lawyer, I might have some speaking gifts, so he asked me to speak and lead it. Uh, now, if you know anything about me, as my wife does, she knows where I'm weak, <laughs> and so did everyone else. So we got there, and uh, dinner was uh, hamburgers and hot dogs. And uh, lunch the next day that I had planned was hot dogs and hamburgers. And, and dinner was going to be sausages and hamburgers. You could, you could see my gift of organization, leadership, and administration already. And so Friday night we did, we did this spiritual gift survey, and there were a couple of people who were leaders who came up in tears because they wanted to have the gift of leadership in a certain way, and they were frustrated and divided against me, and they wanted to confess it because I'd been asked to lead and not them. But then on Saturday morning, they got the results of their, their spiritual gift survey that they had shared and others had helped them with about themselves. And they came up and they said, okay, uh, I have the gift of administration. Give me the car keys. We're not having hamburgers and hot dogs anymore. And then another one came up. I forget what her gift was. It was leadership, I think. And she said, I'm going to redo the whole, uh, the games and the leadership exercises. You can do the talking. I'll, they did everything else. And that, that retreat weekend went from like a C minus to an A plus because gifts were being shared, because people were being unleashed. We want to give you the keys so you can go shopping. We want to give you the schedule and unleash you to help create the rhythms of grace and sweetness for this church. That's who we're called to be. Hold me and others accountable for it, and we'll hold you accountable for taking the keys from us. Finally, deep inclusion. Deep inclusion leading to glory. 
Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. Look, look at the text. How deep is this inclusion? All. Doesn't get any wider than that. Doesn't get any deeper than that. All reach unity in the faith. The goal here is simple, men and women, that we will all reach unity in the faith. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? What it means is that Christians are to experience a deep sense of unity. We've been made one spiritually. Now we need to activate that and visibly display that oneness in two ways. Firstly, unity in the faith. This is a, in context, this means doctrinal agreement over what the gospel is, over who Jesus is and what he means to us and to the world. Doctrine matters, men and women. Doctrine matters deeply. We have had uh, a generation and a half in the church of derision over doctrine, and that derision needs to end because we need unity in the faith according to God's transcultural Bible, His Word. There's no maturing without a growing sense of the truth of the gospel. Second thing he says here the knowledge of the Son of God. There is no maturing without a growing sense of the glory and sweetness and beauty of Jesus. I know many of you thought that you came to Jesus and as new converts you, you enjoyed His grace and then you moved on to, you know, maturity, learning knowledge and doctrine and learning things and… no. Growing maturity, according to the gospel, is growing in the grace and the love and the sweetness of Jesus. Because going deeper into grace is what we need to fight the resume-addicted society that we live in and the resume-addicted inclination of your heart that desires to deserve everything you get. Works-oriented desire to be justified, to be made righteous in the eyes of whoever's judging you is in your heart. Martin Luther said, I have to beat the gospel into my head for three hours every day because I'm so used to getting on the treadmill of the resume. And so here, the knowledge of the Son of God is vital. If we do these two things, this unity in what it means to follow Jesus and believe in Him and what it means to know Him personally, it says there will be a composite picture of a final glory. It says we will attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus. We will reflect the fullness of the beauty and sweetness of Jesus to Him and to our city. And that sweetness... That sweetness is so magnetic. The sweetness of the love of Jesus disarms the darkest enemies. The sweetness of the love of Jesus seen in the church of Jesus will transform the city that Jesus calls us to. So men and women, let's create that composite picture. Do you want to reflect the tenderness of God to the brokenhearted? Shepherds, teach us how to tenderly heal people of their wounds. Do we want to reflect the compassion of Jesus to the poor? Small groups, let's unleash ourselves to have compassion on those who need help most. Let's be more compassionate to the oppressed, the marginalized, the homeless. 
Let's care for those who have no voice but need our care. Do we want to reflect the fullness of Jesus? Then let's reflect on the knowledge of him daily. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you are good and sweet and gracious and your spirit not only pours grace upon us but pours gifts of grace out to us in diverse ways that we may become one. Help us in our diversity to become unified. Help us to become a church that includes all who come in in the love of Christ. We thank you and praise you. Help us to unleash the gifts that every member here, every person here knows they can be a minister to each other because we have the same spirit and we have your gifts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand for our song of response.